Hebrews chapter 11. Here's how I want to take this. This is kind of a paragraph. I'm not going to cover the whole paragraph. Verses 1 through uh, 6 kind of form an initial paragraph in this passage. I'm going to look uh, primarily at the, the ends of it. The, the top, the first verse and the last verse. The first and last verse of this little chapter or this little paragraph kind of capture the main point the author's making about faith. And then in between, he puts some examples that illustrate it. So I'm going to skip the examples today and really look at verse 6 and verse 1 that are talking about faith because that connects to what we're looking at. And the whole rest of the chapter is really illustrating it. We'll come back to this a little later in the fall. But I'm going to actually do it backwards even as we do it. So I'm going to start with verse 6 and see... First, why God gives rewards, and then we'll go backwards to verse 1 to say why it's not wrong to be motivated by rewards as we kind of look at them. So verse 6, follow along with me. 11.6 says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Him meaning God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Okay, so the author is telling us something about how we approach God and, and what pleases God. That's what the author of Hebrews is teaching us in this particular passage, and he's going to give a whole litany of examples. This is like the hall of fame in the Bible in this chapter. So a ton of its illustration, but here he's explaining what faith is. And, and if you have your own Bible with you, and circle these words, but it says in verse 6, and without faith, circle faith, it's impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God must believe, circle believe, that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. That's the same word in the Greek language. Believe in faith, in this passage, it's a kind of a synonym. Uh, the word pistis means uh, faith or belief. And we use that a lot in reference to God, believing in God or, or having our faith in God. But the English translations, they translate it properly. But the problem is the English language migrates and changes over time. You know what I'm talking about? Words that meant one thing at one time mean something, you know, really different now. Man, that was bad. You know what I'm talking about? When you say that, it used to mean it was bad. Now it means it's good. You know, and we do this all the time. This is one of those words. I know that was kind of an 80s type term, but hey, look at the, who you're dealing with here, right? In, the, in our case, uh, this is why I rarely use believe when I'm mindful about it, when I say believe in Jesus Christ. Because I think a lot of people misunderstand what that says. Even though that's the English word, the Greek word behind it means more like our English word that is called trust. See, we use believe in an intellectual way. Yeah, I believe there's a light over there. I believe this is a chair. I believe that's a cross. I believe that's a speaker. You know, I, I know that that's what it is, right? But that's not what this word was ever intended to be when the authors wrote it. They meant, we're not asking, do you believe in a God? Do you believe you should, you know, go to church and, and do you believe you should serve? We're asking it, do you trust that those things are important? And the difference between believing that this is a chair and trusting that chair is very big. I could believe that's a chair, but say, there's no way I'm sitting in that. There's no way I'm relying on that chair. But when I say I trust that chair, it plays out in how I act. It means I will rely on it to support me. That's what that word means in here. The word faith and belief are the same things they mean to trust. And so he's giving us something that's at the core 
of our belief in God. God has ordained that we relate to him through trust, through faith, through relying on him. And God reveals himself as a God who rewards people. To pursue him as such is to have a faith that pleases him. So here's your first point coming right out of this passage. I'm pretty much just writing this passage out for you. Is I cannot please God without trusting that he exists and trusting that he rewards those who seek him. Okay, those are the two things this author says. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. For why? For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So I I just want to challenge us all for a moment. If you're uh, the type that struggles to believe that that rewards are healthy or that's a a proper view or whatever, then you're going to have to throw out not only this verse in the Bible, but a whole bunch of other verses that we see in the scriptures. There's nothing wrong with us pursuing a God who rewards or even pursuing a reward that he offers. Now, that said, you can wrongly pursue a reward. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that every time you pursue a reward, it's right or good. That's not what I'm saying. For example, if one of my kids came to me and, and said, hey, Dad, I just washed your car. And I vacuumed it out and I went, man, that is really sweet. You just honored me by doing that. Thanks, Dad. Can I have $20 for doing it? Okay, there's that. that's a little shady, right? Because they weren't really obeying me. They weren't pursuing me. They were doing something. They really wanted the $20. They were just using me to get it. Now, I know no one in this church has ever done that with God. No one's ever said, hey, God, I'm going to attend all four Sundays this month, but you got to get me that job, all right? Okay, that is manipulating God. That's pursuing a reward, not pursuing God. But a father that says, you know what, son? I'm going to ask you to wash my car and just clean it up for me. Would you do that? Would you vacuum it? Would you take the time and and get it all clean? And if you do a good job with that, I'm going to give you $20. And they take off and they just do exactly what you want. And they come back and say, Dad, the car is, is, is finished. It's spick and span just the way you said. And you give them that reward. There's nothing wrong with them being motivated by that. Because what's happened is they have chosen to say, I'm not going to pursue any other reward that I could have given. They could have spent that time with their friends and got the reward of being with their friends. They could have gone to Taco Palenque and got the reward of a pirata. I mean, that's tempting, let me tell you. But they chose to set everything else aside and do as you asked them and as you revealed you would. And they said, you know what, Dad? Your reward of, of one, being pleased with me, but also the reward of the money you're going to give me is more valuable to me than any other reward I could have pursued with my life at that moment. That honors the person. That honors not only them, but the reward. And that's what God reveals himself is in the Bible. To to pursue a reward shows that I trust one, I trust that that person exists, that they're a real person. It also shows that I trust them enough that when I do what they ask me to do, that they're going to reward me like they said they would. Everything about it accomplishes what God wants from us as his children to trust him. 
That's one of the reasons he's that way. Second thing we see is why it's not wrong to be motivated by reward. So let's jump back to the beginning now and go back to what's kind of a definition or a description of faith by the author at the very beginning of this chapter. It says, now faith is, so this is a, good, a great verse to memorize, circle that. It's kind of a description of what faith is. And here's two things you're going to see, and you're going to see these two things just mimic what we just looked at. Now faith is, here's the two things, the assurance of things hoped for. So think about the things you hope for as a Christian. Every single one of them is a reward. You hope for healed relationships. You hope for a body that's not broken like it is. You hope for the, the, the absence of sin. You hope for the provisions that will be there that you need for all of life and not to deal with the struggles you deal with now. All the things you hope for are rewards that God says he will provide for us in eternity. He says that's the one thing, the assurance, it's a conviction, it's, a, it's a, the absolute confidence that that reward will be there, the things we hope for. And the second thing is the conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You know what the biggest thing is that we don't see? God. The Bible says no man has ever seen God. He's spirit. We will see him one day, but this is what faith is. It's a conviction that this God whom I can't see, you know, in, in his spirit form. Obviously, he came in the flesh. He sent his son. We can see Jesus, but you and I won't see Jesus this side of heaven. That one generation got to see him, but they're saying faith is the conviction that the God whom you can't see is really real. So the very heart of our faith requires both of those things. It's faith in a person and faith in the rewards that he promises us. Both of those things are at the heart of who we are as Christians. You see, rewards require hope and trust because they aren't received until after proper action or obedience is taken. You don't give a reward to someone and then ask them to obey. Think of the Olympics. Think of the young women and men who, who set aside hours and hours for years and years and years to train to one day have that reward put over their neck. How hard do you think those people would train if the last three or four Olympics, the people that won, they just said, hey, we're not doing a reward ceremony at all this year. We're not going to hand those out anymore. Uh, it's not going to happen. People would just, the, the whole games would fall apart. Why? Because they'd stop trusting that the people who said there'll be a reward there are going to follow through on it. But the reason people pursue that is because they trust that the reward will be there when it's all said and done. When we put that trust from things in this world to what God says is most important, it pleases him. Some people often will think that it's selfish to seek or to want a reward. And like I mentioned, that's true when the reward is sought apart from the rewarder. It's also true when the reward is sought that wasn't promised. Like you, you, you make something up and you do something and you, you want to dem demand from God some reward that he never promised. That is displeasing. But it's not selfish to seek a reward in and of itself. In fact, let's kind of clarify the fallacy that 
that some people are not motivated by rewards or or maybe worse, some people who will say, I'm too spiritual. Spiritual people don't pursue a reward because a reward is kind of selfish. You might hear a statement like this. You know, I'm going to obey just for obedience sake, just because it's the right thing to do. But that's simply a trick in our minds to hide the real reward that we're pursuing. You, you can't obey for obedience sake. Like, Who's obedience? Obedience is a concept. How do you obey for obedience sake? You're obeying for some reward. The problem is you just won't admit it. If you're not obeying for God's sake or for the reward of what he gives, whether it's his pleasure in you when you obey, if you're thinking that you're obeying for something that has no reward attached, ultimately you're obeying for yourself. So what you're saying is the only person you care to please is yourself. And you want to see yourself as a better person or a good person because of your obedience. And so that's absolutely the worst motivation to have. Because what you're saying is that I don't need you, God. I don't desire you, God. I just want to make myself look good. That's what the Pharisees did. That's a self-righteousness, a righteousness that they pursued the rewards of their own self and they pursued the rewards of other people and how those people would see them. I want to obey because I want to be seen as a respectable person in my society, in my group, in my group. I want people to think highly of me. But when you obey to receive God's reward, you honor him, you pursue him. You say, God, you are the most desirable person in this universe. I don't want anyone else's pleasure, even my own, more than I want yours. You see, nothing could be more selfless in one sense than pursuing God's reward, and nothing could be more selfish in the sense that for our own good than pursuing God's reward. When we obey for his reward, it means that he and his rewards are more valuable than anything else we may come across. You always have some reward or some gain for your reason. Now, you might be the person that says, well, Chad, you know, I, I don't think that's true. I, I can give you an example of where there was no reward. You know, I, I had a business deal, and in the midst of this thing, some things happened, and, and if, if I was honest with what took place in this business deal, I was going to lose a whole bunch of money. But if I lied, I wouldn't lose that money. And Chad, I, I chose to obey. I chose to, to obey and say, I'm going to tell the truth, and I lost all that money. He said, where, where was the reward in that, Chad? Okay, great ask, a great, great, great question. Where was the reward in it? There's one of two rewards you may have been pursuing. One was a good one, and one was a poor one. You can do the right thing for a good motive and for a wrong motive. The wrong motive was you would rather lose that money than face the possibility of getting caught lying and have a reputation as a cheater. And so in that case, your gain was I'd rather take the lesser loss of this money than to you what was perceived as the greater loss of being found out as a cheater in your business. 
So yes, there was a reward. The reward for you was not getting caught. And not getting caught was more important to you than that money that you might lose. That's not a good reward. It's not a good motivation. But you chose that. The lesser of two evils. The right one would be obedience saying, my integrity and my value to God before God and being pleased with him, knowing that he will be pleased with me if I'm honest, that is of greater reward to me. That God can look down at me and say, Chad or whoever that person was, I am pleased with how you handled it. That you would say, you know what? I'd rather lose that money than lose the smile of God's pleasure on my life. There is always a reward in everything you do. And if you don't stop to ask yourself, what is it that I'm really pursuing at this moment? You might lose it. You might lose the greater reward. I want to challenge you, if you're of that mindset, and many Christians are, that rewards are wrong to pursue or selfish to pursue, to reconsider what the Bible actually says. Here's my third question. It's not a point yet, but it's why our works have value before God. And I'm going to show you a, a number of passages. I could spend, honestly, I could spend the whole summer reading scripture to you that show over and over again how God rewards and why he rewards. We don't have that much time, so I'm just going to give you a simple survey of the New Testament. We're not even going to touch the Old Testament. So I'm going to start with Jesus. I figure he's a pretty good guy to start with in terms of what he said. One of his most famous messages he ever gave, the Sermon on the Mount, starts with the Beatitudes. Almost every single Beatitude is a promise of a reward. Okay, notice the tense of these verses. Blessed are. Okay, this is a little English lesson. Are is the present tense, meaning right now. Shall be is a future tense, meaning what will be. It's like the reward. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Their reward will be to see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Your reward is you'll be called a son of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's your reward. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It goes on to the next slide. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Then he says this, this is crazy unless there's a reward. Rejoice, he says, and be glad. Meaning when per people persecute you and, and revile you because of Jesus, he says rejoice and be glad. And he tells us why. For your reward is great in heaven. How could you possibly rejoice unless you know that there's something better awaiting you in that moment? You can say, you know what? Mock me all you want, people. But I would any day of the week take the pleasure and favor of my Father over the pleasure and favor of people. Why? Because his pleasure is a greater reward than anything I get here. You see, when we give in to peer pressure, we do it because we believe the reward of people accepting us is greater in that moment than the reward of God being pleased with us. That's the reality of it. And until our mindset shifts to see this, 
We won't change or be any different. Next one. Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. Look what he says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Well, why? Why should we be aware of that? For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Hmm. Then he goes on to say, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Every single one of these, Jesus is motivating his disciples saying, don't seek the rewards of people patting you on the back for your spirituality. He says, seek the reward that only your Father can give you when you do it with him first and foremost in your heart. He said also, look at this parable that Jesus taught. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Why will you be blessed? For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Another reward. Goes on to, what's the next one? First Corinthians, this is Paul. He uses this great athletic type metaphor as, as Paul often does. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. So he's saying, go after it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it, he's talking about earthly ones, to receive a perishable wreath, meaning one that won't last, it's going to perish. But we, meaning us Christians, an imperishable. So he's saying, go after it, compete, pursue these things, but pursue the right rewards because they don't ever go away. And so Paul says in conclusion, so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now what we can't misunderstand on this is when Paul says he's disqualified, he's not talking about his salvation. You're saved by the, the work of Jesus Christ first and foremost. You contribute nothing to that. What Paul is talking about is being disqualified from receiving a reward that he'll enjoy for all of eternity. Very important to keep those two things separate. Look what Hebrews, the author, says. He says, by faith, Moses, when he grew as grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There's their temporary, perishable pleasures. He, and tells us why. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. He was motivated by the reward that awaited him that was so much greater than any reward he could have achieved in this earth. Here's some of Jesus' final words in the book of Revelation. He says, look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds.
Now, that may not be convincing to you. I only took a fraction of the passages in the Bible. But I want us to understand God talks about this all over the place. And to, 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 to believe that our works have no value before God anymore is, is completely untrue. They don't save us, but they are a very much a response to our salvation. So last thing is, why is it vitally important how we live as Christians then? Uh, this will take us over to our 2 Corinthians passage. So flip your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, it will come up on the screen as well. And we'll see, lastly, that our lives do matter before God, even as saved Christians, because of how he wants us to live. Paul says this in this passage. Let me give you a little context. Paul's talking about uh, death here in this passage and what happened a little bit. And he's saying, he's using the phrase, whether I'm home or away, to describe whether we're in our physical bodies or we're away from our physical bodies. He's talking about a, a time period where when we die right now as Christians, uh, we're in a, a temporary state. We go to be with Jesus. We're in what the Bible calls paradise. Our spirit is with Jesus immediately, but our bodies are here in the grave on the earth, and that's our, not our normal state. Okay, the normal state is for us to be in our bodies, our spirits and our bodies to be together. And that's what we'll be in for all of eternity. And when God finally resurrects everyone and brings time to the end, he'll give us a brand new glorified body with our perfected spirit. And we'll live in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to live on earth for all of eternity. It's going to be perfect the way it was intended to be. So Paul's talking about in this state, he's saying, hey, whether you're at home in your body, meaning you're still alive, or you're away from your body, He's saying, I have the same goal, to please God. And he says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And then he tells us why. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, some people might say, well, yeah, Chad, the bad people, evil people, they're going to have to, you know, receive what's due for them for their evil and the good people for the you know, good things they've done. But Paul's not talking about everyone in this passage. Read the passage. Every single time in this chapter Paul says we, he's referring to we as Christians. He's not, he's not talking to unbelievers in this passage. He's talking about Christians. And he says we are for we must all before, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every single one of us is going to have our life thoroughly evaluated by the Lord Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. That's my final point for you that I want to talk about a little bit. Is My life as a Christian will be thoroughly evaluated by God so that I may receive a reward based on how I've lived. The Bible talks about two judgments. One of them is the judgment seat of Christ. It's a judgment that's for Christians, where our lives will be evaluated, not for salvation, but for rewards and, and what eternity will be like for us. The other judgment that the Bible talks about is the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, all non-believers' lives are judged so that God can show that he's just in condemning them for all of eternity. God is going to handle everything perfectly just. But I think it's really important for us as Christians who have many false 
conceptions about this to understand that just because we're forgiven, it's not a free ticket, in a sense, out of jail. That when we become Christians, our lives now have even greater accountability. We, uh, even more should be expected of us, given what we know about what God has done for us. And this passage, look what it says. It says, whether good or evil, that every aspect of our life will be brought to our attention. The Bible says this and Jesus says this, every word and deed, what was done in the dark, will be made visible in that moment. And I believe personally that there's going to be a lot of, a variety of different emotions. There's going to be great triumph for those people who have chosen to faithfully serve Jesus during their life here on earth. And there's going to be great tragedy in those moments of judgment for people who have squandered their lives and lived selfishly all that time taking advantage of the grace of God and not living in a way that's pleasing to him, putting their own agenda first rather than God's agenda. The Bible makes that pretty clear. And I say this not to scare you into obedience, not at all. I say that as a motivation, God has set it up in a way that he wants to reward you with rewards that you will enjoy for all of eternity. And what's sad is it's not an ability thing. Uh, many times the things that we're pursuing and we go after here on this earth show that we have the ability to go after something that's important to us. What's sad is, is that we think we know what's best. Instead of trusting in a God we can't see and hoping for those things that don't yet exist. God wants you to take that same motivation and pursue something that you can never, ever lose. Because every single reward you've earned in this world, you will lose the moment you die. But every reward you pursue for him in the next world, you will enjoy a hundredfold for all of eternity. That's not a bad deal. We shouldn't, we shouldn't go, oh, woe is me. Look at the things I got to give up as a Christian. I mean, man, I, I can't be as greedy and I can't buy more stuff for myself and I can't always think of myself. We tend to do that as Christians think, man, it's just a drag to be a Christian. Man, no one's going to be saying that when you stand before God and, and he rewards you so richly for all of eternity. Well, there's no victims as Christians. Man, we're getting infinitely more than we could ever possibly imagine. You think the home or the car or the pleasures that you have now are, are great, man, you're going to think that that's the most gross, ugly, useless thing ever the moment you stand in God's presence. That's a good father, just like a good parent who pleads with a child who keeps pursuing the things that they know are harmful to them, but that child thinks is the best thing. Gummy bears, Dad, are the best possible food I could ever eat. I love them, Daddy. Let your kid eat gummy bears their whole life, and how much a reward are they going to seek? But a parent that loves their child enough to reward them when they make choices that are going to bless them for the future is a good parent. 
just like a good God would do with his children who need an eternal perspective and not a temporal one. The judgment seat or the bema seat, as it's called, the Greek word is bema. Paul gets from uh, his own time uh, in Corinth. He wrote to the Corinthian church and the bema seat sat in the middle of Corinth. And if you bring up that next picture, this is a picture of excavated Corinth. These are buildings that actually still exist that archaeologists have excavated. So this is a little part of the central plaza here, the theaters and different buildings here. And I'm going to zoom in on a part right here in the little courtyard where the bema seat existed. It was an elevated platform. Probably the Probably the, the piece of, of stonework that motivated our common Olympic stand now. But what would happen at the Bema seat, in particular at the Ismailian Games, which was the kind of predecessor to the Olympic Games, was when an athlete competed, this is one of its uses, when an athlete competed, there was all these judges around scrutinizing the athlete's performance, making sure that they followed every single rule that that game required. And when the competition was done, those judges would stand on that bema seat and the athlete would stand before them and they would critique every aspect of their performance and reward them accordingly. That's the picture. That's the word that Paul grabbed from his context to help us understand of what the works in our lives mean to God, of why he longs to reward us for the lives that we've lived. You see, even Jesus was rewarded for what he did for us in his life on this earth, his life and his death. Read Philippians chapter 2. talks about what Jesus was willing to let go of in heaven to come here to earth that he humbled himself, he took on human flesh, he became a servant, and he submitted himself even to death on a cross. But then the passage turns, and right after that it says, therefore, meaning as a result of Jesus' obedience, God bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Jesus received the reward of a name that is above every name. We haven't even heard that name yet. I think it'll be revealed in those days when we first see him. And we'll be so overwhelmed with his greatness at that moment that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But there's another reward that Jesus received. One that he pursued when he came to this earth. One that he did not possess as the king in heaven. Think about that. He had everything he could possibly imagine. He had all the riches, all the pleasures, all the glories of heaven. And yet there was something that he did not possess. A reward that he wanted. As much as any other reward that he had. It was you and me. He came to receive the reward of his children because he knew that none of us could enjoy the joys and pleasures of the heaven that he was in.
unless a satisfactory substitute died in our place. A perfect, sinless sacrifice. He said, I'll go. They are worth that much to me. He didn't need us. He doesn't need you and I. He's not dependent on us. He wanted us. He, he wanted to show a love that, that's unfathomable, that he who had all the riches, he who was absolutely perfect, would seek as his reward broken, finite, rebellious people out of love to share all of his glory for all of eternity. So let me just leave you with this one thought. If Jesus would risk so much, if Jesus would give up so much for a reward like you and me, what should we be willing to give up for a reward like him? For the reward that we will gain when we trust that he exists and we trust that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. You see, the only real dangerous risk you will take in this life is to cling to the things that you can never take with you and miss out on what you might enjoy for all of eternity. And the only security you'll ever enjoy in this life is to release what you cannot keep so that you can grab hold of what you will never, ever lose and what will satisfy you for all of eternity. Imagine a church that so treasured Jesus and so passionately sought the true and greater reward of Jesus Christ that they considered the things that they had on this earth of little value and used them instead to tell every single person they could about the infinite riches that await anyone who trusts Jesus as their Savior and follows Him with their life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these truths. Lord, they constantly humble me when I think of the way that I squandered so much in my life as a young man selfishly indulging myself, always thinking that I knew what was best. And Lord, try as I might, those things never, ever satisfied my soul. They always felt like something was missing even when I acquired them. Just praise you for opening eyes, Lord, for, for pursuing sinners. And if salvation wasn't enough, you're so good that you say, I want to share all this wealth, all this pleasure, all this joy, all this glory that I have. I want to share it with you. But Lord, you want to change us in the process. So Lord, give us eyes to see the true rewards. Give us 
eyes to see what, what, what can't be seen in this life, but is so clearly revealed in your word. And Lord, teach us to long for the greater reward that can never be taken away. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.